Welcome back. We are going to enter into this second critique of Loftus's new book that he edited, The Case Against Miracles. This is an anthology um, where uh, a bunch of authors are contributing various chapters. Now, last time I said I was going to get through uh, the preface and the introduction, I misspoke. I was meaning the foreword and the introduction. Um, once I got to about 45 minutes, the episode was getting a touch too long, and so I decided to leave the first part uh, alone as it was at about that timestamp. Uh, this is going to be the second part dealing with the introduction. So if you haven't already gone and listened through from the beginning of the playlist, please head on back, listen to that first before we, uh, we continue on here. Uh, I'll pause and wait. No, I won't. You can pause and, and come back. Uh, so this one we're actually going to go through and we're going to address the introduction. And remember, uh, I'm still getting used to these video things. I'm still getting used to how to kind of go back and forth between looking you all square in the eye and looking at my computer screen below, which has uh, some of the information. I'll try to get better at it, guys. Uh, I'll see what I can, what I can do. Uh, also, if you appreciate this content or any of the other content, uh, head on over to either Patreon or to the blog at uh, uh, freethinkerpodcast.blogspot.com or to uh, Freethinker Podcast on Podbean, become a, a patron there, um, and you can help support the show so I can get a little bit better equipment uh, and a little bit better software to run these things. So uh, for those of you who are contributing, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Well, with that, let's jump right into this uh, episode dealing with the introduction of Loftus's book, The Case Against Miracles. Now, Loftus uh, wrote the introduction. We saw uh, Michael Shermer's addition or uh, uh, contribution in the preface, but now we're getting through the introduction. And Loftus starts the intro with already using a mistaken conflation that's common among new atheists that biblical beliefs were somewhat identical to pagan ones in a very kind of structural way. That is, they'll claim that the biblical authors equally thought that things like the rain or the sunrise or finding your keys were all somehow direct actions contributable to God or the gods, um, and that really the only difference between, say, pagan religions and biblical religion was which god or gods they ascribed it to. Um, Loftus also claims that what mattered then for the biblical author, authors was if it was ordinary, extraordinary, or miraculous. Those are the three categories he wants to filter it through. This has a, a couple problems. I've addressed these on other episodes and other places before. Um, it's simply not the case that biblical authors exhibited um, very much of the normative expectation that a lot of surrounding pagan cultures had. We get a lot of our understanding uh, kind of mistakenly through uh, Western pagan cultures when we think about conflicts between the church advances um, and, and the pagan nations as they expanded up into, you know, Britannia and, and, and so forth, so, so on and so forth. But it's simply not the case that what we find in the Bible is a lot of these normative explanations like that the thunder is God being angry or rain is the, the, is God 
weeping or procreating or something like we just don't see that type of normative explanation uh, throughout the scriptures what we do find are explanations sometimes of specific events so for example the rain at the flood is attributed to god but it's not the case that the bible attributes all rain to God. Um, there, there is an understanding that God is the one who provides, but there's no sense that, it, that it's stated that God is directly providing, that when it rains, every time it rains, God is the one that's causing it to rain from his you know, storehouses of water, for example. Um, so it, that, that simply is a, a long um, dismissed view among biblical scholarship that Loftus is parroting here. Uh, he also then baldly asserts the, the evolution of religion paradigm, that it all started in, in you know, our, our ancestors with animistic religions, and then it worked through polytheism, and then henotheism, and then arrived at the monotheistic traditions, and he would say continue to evolve and get to humanism and, and naturalism and so on and so forth. This is actually just a long dismissed error of the 19th century liberalism, which is pretty easy to parrot but never prove. Uh, and just to put a plug out there for my friend Michael Jones at Inspiring Philosophy, he's actually working on putting out a series addressing this exact uh, 19th century myth that so many online atheists uh, and, and kind of proto-intellectual, or not proto, but <laughs> quasi-intellectuals continue to parrot. But it's just, you know, outside of Karen Armstrong books, it's just not something uh, that is really all that all that prevalent. So take a peek, uh, keep an eye out for Michael Jones's um, series on inspiring philosophy dealing with this. For the purposes of this episode, let me just say that that thesis has been under so much heavy fire and so heavily dismissed even by secular religious philosophers and historians and biblical uh, biblical scholars uh, of every single variety and type over the past, you know, three or four decades. It's just it's just really radically fallen out of favor. And so when people like Loftus and, and others and there's meme makers out there and stuff, when they continue to, to parrot this thesis, they're really showing that they're just not caught up with the best data. Um, now, while it is the case that in biblical times, they weren't as naturalistic um, as, as even modern Christians are, that's, that's, that's absolutely true to be sure, um, it's simply a mistake to say that they're just as superstitious as their pagan neighbors. That's just not a fact. Uh, Loftus then continues Shermer's prior assertion from the preface that uh, of the of the violation of the law of nature definition of miracles uh, given by Hume, and he says that it's the most accurate one. Um, most accurate to what? Uh, we're dealing with definitions. Remember, definitions are not objective facts. Words are not objective in their meaning. Dictionaries don't actually create or or make the meaning and usages of words static. A definition is really a catalog of how the word is used in present parlance, right? So again, we talked about this last time, the word faith, one of the uses of faith is something like blind faith, is belief without evidence. Why? Because you have thousands of people using it that way. You have all the atheists online using it that way. You have published authors in, in, uh, in, in best-selling uh, books like The God Delusion and so forth using it that way. So what is Webster's Dictionary and Oxford Dictionary going to you do? They're going to catalog that usage of it. But the question is, what concept is the person that you're speaking with 
using. Um, and when you're talking to a biblical Christian, we're not using that definition of faith. We're using a different definition of faith. We're not redefining. It's historically actually meant something else. It's historically meant a volitional act of the will, an act of trust that may be informed by the intellect, but it's not the, the, the evidentiary status. I'm not saying it's non-evidence, but the, the evidentiary status, status is not part of the definition. You can have faith in a bridge, you can have faith in a person and be well established by the evidence or not established by evidence or falsely attributed to bad evidence. The, the evidentiary status just isn't isn't part of the concept. The concept is a, a, a volitional act of the will in placing your trust, your whole being into something or upon something. Um, so that, that's been the concept that it's been used that way for millennia. The redefinition is actually the new atheistic one that it is. Uh, and well, I mean, it, it goes back, it goes back to, you know, the, the devil's Bible and, and Mark Twain and so on and so forth. Um, but the point is, is that when you're dealing with something like a definition of faith, or in this case, a definition of miracle, and you say, this is the most accurate definition. Most accurate to what? Um, there, there's the, to which concept are you dealing with? Because that's not an accurate definition uh, to the biblical concept or, or the, the uh, historic Christian concept of a miracle. Um, so what is it most accurate to? Well, it's most accurate to the concept that, that they want to prop up and engage with. But at that point, it's a straw man. That's not really the, the historic Christian or the, the biblically uh, faithful view. Um, so why can't there be more robust understandings, more robust concepts? So let's say, uh, let, let, for the sake of argument, let's say that we agree that one usage of the word miracle is this kind of any act that is a violation of the law of nature. Okay, let's imagine you're successful in defeating that. Great, let's put a pin in that. Now can you come and deal with our concept? Uh, this, this is just why these kind of attempts to win by definitional fiat just aren't really good arguments. Um, it's, it's also not clear how this isn't poisoning the well um, a bit, trying to basically say like, hey, don't you all know that this is the definition? If you don't think that, then you're redefining it, right? It, it's, it, it's just not a good faith way to, to engage with your opponent. Loftus writes on page 10, quote, a miracle must be an event caused by a supernatural force or being, a god. Such an event could not take place on its own in the natural world without the action of a god. It must be an event which involves the interfering or suspension or transgressing or breaching or contravening or, uh, or violating of natural laws. Such an event could not be explainable by science because it would be an event impossible to incur by natural process alone. A miracle is therefore an extraordinary event of the highest kind. He says that again on page 10. Well, there's a problem with that. Again, that's not exactly clear why all those musts are in there. Why must it be that way? Why can't we use a different, more robust concept? Um, why aren't things like concurrence possible? Why is God not able to have his, his will for an event, his intervening event, and the natural process as a means to bring about that event? Why isn't concurrence a possibility for a miracle? Why could God not work through natural means? In fact, again, if, if some of you think I'm just making this up, uh, so I'm a, I'm a Reformed Christian. I affirm uh, something like the, what are called the Westminster Standards. One of those is the Westminster Confession of Faith. Well, in the Confession of Faith, by the way, this was written hundreds of years ago. This was long before Hume... This was long before, uh, you know, the new atheists and Bertrand Russell and so forth. They're not responding to that. 
Um, so th th this is not this is this is this is written not with that type of disagreement in mind. And this is how the Westminster Confession defines God's activities. You can read it in, in chapter five, uh, statements two and three. It reads. Quote, although in relation to the foreknowledge and decree of God, the first cause, all things come to pass immutably and infallibly, that is unchangeably uh, and unalterably, yet by the same providence he ordereth them to fall out according to the nature of second causes, either necessarily, freely, or contingency. Let me pause right there for a second. Secondary causes are things that he's not directly causing something, something that is necessarily, uh, something that necessarily causes something that is is, is necessarily uh, comes about, uh, something that, that, that necessarily comes about because an elephant is more massive than a mouse, because a bachelor cannot be married. Those are, those are necessary things. Uh, freely is something um, that, that is kind of, uh, it means like randomly without, there, there's no, you know, we, we don't, we don't perceive all the things. So, uh, you know, one of the examples given from the Bible is when uh, someone just looses an arrow and it, and it hits one of the kings. The person wasn't trying to hit the king. It's just a, it's just a random event. It's just, it's just freely happening. Now, if, if we had, you know, inexhaustible knowledge of every single proton and quark in existence and where it was, and we knew the trajectory and all that kind of stuff, we could probably calculate where it was going to, where it was going to land. Um, but, but the point is that it's just kind of at, at random. The person was just shooting an arrow into a battlefield. Uh, and then contingently means things that, um, that we, 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 in, we intend to bring about, but, but it's contingent. I intend uh, to pick up and drink from my cup. That's not necessarily, that's not randomly, it's contingently. Uh, so moving on, uh, statement three, quote, God in his ordinary providence maketh use of means, yet is free to work without, above, or against them at his pleasure. Uh, end quote. So again, there, there, Loftus is trying to say there, there has to be this strict impossibility violation of the laws of nature for us to consider it a miracle or an act of God. Um, Christians have never understood it that way. We've never understood miracles that way. And the Westminster Confession of Faith uh, is just one such example of saying that's not exactly what we mean when we're talking about uh, God's activity in, in, in all of creation. So right off the bat, Loftus shows that he's going to be working with the concept of miracle or providence that's just not essential to biblical Christianity. Any biblical Christian can say, okay, well, that's a, that's a cute definition, but that's not my definition. So why don't we, if you want to engage my definition, if you want to engage with a biblical historical Christian concept, come on over. We'll, we, we'll leave the light on for you whenever you're ready, you know, attacking those straw men. Whenever you're ready, tilting at hills, uh, tilting at windmills. We'll leave the light on for you. Come on in. We'll have a, you know, I'll have some coffee for you, uh, and uh, and and we'll have a discussion. But uh, as long as you're as long as you're not dealing with my concepts, you're you're not really playing in my yard. So have fun. Um, but let's just say, for the sake of charity, let's pretend um, that he isn't talking about all of God's providential workings. He he only means those things um, that do meet. Those, those definitions um, uh, that being something that could not occur by natural means, right? So, so there's this broader definition of miracles, and he says, okay, but yeah, but let, let's not deal with all that stuff. Let's only deal with that one category uh, of things that could not be brought about by natural means. Right. Um, he would already need to get away from saying, well, that's just what, you know, a miracle qua miracle is. Uh, he would need to get away from that. But let's just say for the sake of argument, we're only dealing with those events which are are supposed to be um, just such an event. Um, let, let's let's think about that. 
Um, well, so, so he continues. He writes, so a miracle is not merely an extremely rare event within the natural world or something that just happened at the right time. Again, great. But then all that, but, but then all that, uh, all that requires of Loftus and company, uh, is that they're begging the question of philosophical naturalism again to say that no such event could occur or that natural claims are intrinsically more plausible than supernatural ones, which again, as we showed in the last video and we'll show again here shortly, is just a logically fallacious epistemology. So even if that's the category he is working with, um, He's not taking the agnostic card, right? He's not saying, okay, well, I, I, I don't know. I'm going to sit back. You need to provide it to me. He's actually making the positive claim that those are impossible to happen, that any natural explanation is intrinsically more plausible than any supernatural one. Well, he needs to defend those two claims. He doesn't just get away with saying them. Uh, and, the, and the atheist may, may retort, well, well of, course he's, of course he's justified in saying those because the theist has never been able to show otherwise. Again, that, that's just a fallacious way of arguing. That's just an argument from silence. Even if it is the case that no theist has ever been able to prove a miracle in that sense of a miracle that doesn't justify or warrant um, the invention of that type of logical positivistic standard. Um, this falls back again on um, where they're actually in conflict with Hume, where we're dealing with, you know, uh, well, since no one's ever been able to show a black swan, therefore it's impossible for a black swan to, to exist, right? Dealing with before they ever found a black swan. Um, well, that's just logically fallacious. That's just not a good way to argue, but that's exactly the type of argument that Loftus and company are making here. Loftus then actually appeals to statistics when he argues that rare things on the grand scheme of things just aren't really that rare, no matter how rare something is, um, as long as it isn't impossible, then it has a chance, especially in a nearly infinite multiverse, it has a chance of coming about. And so therefore, again, uh, any natural chance of it coming about is intrinsically more plausible um, than any supernatural one. Um, so, so he's, he's trying to say, um, that, that, that even, even random chance always, well, unless it's logically contradictory, has a statistically probable way. And so therefore that's a plausible explanation. Um, but Loftus moves to the position from that, that therefore a rare event doesn't mean it's a miracle. I agree. A rare event doesn't mean it's a miracle. You'd have to actually go through an abductive case for it, which so many do. Um, but he seems unaware that it doesn't mean it isn't one either. Again, something that's logically improbable doesn't mean that, that, that the hard explanation isn't the case. And here, here, I'm not, before the atheists get up in arms, I'm not using this as a defense for any miracle claim. I'm simply saying you cannot make the universal negative based on this case. Uh, remember, he has to take the burden of proof in proving that it's impossible for that to be a miracle, that it's not a miracle. Indeed, that no such things as miracles are even possible. 
So this this also becomes an explanation. His his statistical you know implausibility in the grand scheme of things is always plausible. Uh, also becomes an explanation for anything uh, and can be used to defend any event as a, a, as an event apart from any intelligence. Why? Well, a, a bank is suddenly missing thirty million dollars from from its registry and it it's found in my account and it looks like there's a software bug that caused it. Well, don't don't blame me. It was a random event. It was, it was spun out of the quantum vacuum. I, I don't. I don't know how. I know it's insanely rare and it's statistically impossible. You know, improbable. But statistically, in the grand scheme of things, with an infinite multiverse, it's bound to happen somewhere. Right? That's, that's just not how we overcome competing explanations. That 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 type of, of of abuse of statistics is just nonsense we we don't use that type of argument as ex, you know, as an explanation or to dismiss other explanations it's just not a good argument we saw this earlier and we'll see it again, the kind of naturalism of the gaps that a Humean kind of um, logical, positivistic, scientistic epistemology leads to. Um, but, but the statistical case is, is and, and the way he's going from it's statistically improbable, um, but it's likely, therefore, therefore it's necessary that, it, you know, that it's going to be a, a naturalist explanation, it is, is actually this kind of weird, fallacious, naturalistic parody of a kind of ontological argument, or at least uh, it's not actually of the of the real ontological argument. It's kind of a parody of, of, of how most online infidel type atheists think that the ontological argument works, right? They think the ontological argument is if it's possible that God exists, therefore we can just question beg that God exists, um, which isn't the ontological argument. But that's really... Their critique of the ontological argument is what Loftus is doing here, that if it's possible that there's a naturalistic ex explanation, then it's necessary that there's a naturalistic explanation, um, which is just a bad argument. Again, if the ontological argument was doing it, the ontological would be a bad argument. It's not what it's doing, so that's not a valid critique of, of the ontological argument. But it is, it is a problem here when they try to use it. Loftus writes again, since there are clear instances where a perfectly good omnipotent God should have intervened with a perpetual miracle but didn't, like stopping the 2004 Indian Ocean tsunami, we can reasonably conclude that he doesn't do them at all. He says this on page 11. Um, that's simply a non sequitur for multiple reasons. But first, let's imagine that, that, that we throw out the omnibenevolence of God and we say, okay, well, there's an all-powerful God. If he was morally perfect, he should have stopped the 2004 tsunami. Therefore, such a being has never done anything uh, else in all of creation. Well, that just doesn't follow. Um, so even on the face of it, even if, even if it works in undermining an omnibenevolent God, um, it just doesn't follow that, therefore, no miracle, no, you know, no interventionist activity of God has ever taken place because he didn't, he didn't do one in this case where, where Loftus thinks he ought to have. Um, the other problem is, why ought a perfectly good God have done that, specifically with the 2004 Indian Ocean tsunami? Can Loftus prove that such a being, remember, immutable and indefatigable in their omnibenevolence and their justice with unlimited knowledge of all the future outcomes and event, that, that such a being wouldn't have morally sufficient reasons for allowing it? Of course Loftus can't prove that, right? He's, 
he would have to claim omniscience to be able to do that, right? Which, I'm sorry, he's, he's already shown he doesn't understand so many things. The man is not omniscient. I don't know if that's news to some of you, um, but surprise, he's not omniscient. Um, I mean, of course he can't prove that. It's, it's just an atheistic platitude of saying, well, if I was God and still had only my limited nature and completely rejected the biblical view of sin, the fall, creation, and so forth, such that I was actually much more like Zeus than like Yahweh, then I would have stopped that tsunami. Okay, um, but Christians aren't pagans. We don't think Yahweh is like Zeus. Um, you need to address our view and use our concepts if you're going to have a successful internal critique and you want them to work. Um, biblical Christianity has certain views of creation, dealing with the fall, dealing with sin, dealing with the judgment upon all humanity for our sinful activities such that God does not actually have to save anybody at any time. God would be entirely morally sufficient in just snuffing out all of humanity if he wanted to right in this moment. Um, so the, God, God ought to have saved um, and, and stop the tsunami? Why? Why Why ought he have done that based on what standard? Again, we can also go back and point out that Loftus has no basis for his for his uh, his moral platitudes either within his own naturalistic worldview, right? So there, there's all kinds of problems that that come from this. Loftus then goes on to, to quote um, David Johnson like, like Shermer did in the preface. And he, and he, write, uh, he quotes Johnson as saying, quote, if an event does not violate natural law, then it will have a natural explanation, and available natural explanations will always be more adequate than supernatural ones, end quote. Uh, as we showed last time, that's just naturalism of the gaps. That's a kind of scientistic, neological positivism functioning as their epistemology. And it's just fallacious. Right? It's, the, it's the argument that... that X event occurs that appears to not be naturalistically impo naturalistic, uh, naturally impossible. So the question is, what evidence would, dem under this definition, under this epistemology, what evidence would demonstrate to Loftus's satisfaction that a miracle has occurred, that something supernatural has occurred given his epistemology of scientism, right? Uh, Remember, he's going to say we ought only believe what we can demonstrate by science, right? That that's going to be that that's one of his premises, right? Science only explores natural causes and empirical evidence. He also pairs that with the the, the value premise um, that all natural explanation, any natural explanation, is intrinsically more adequate or more plausible than any supernatural one. Right, you put that all together and you get this just basically unfalsifiable epistemology. You get this, this stew, this logical positivistic stew of unfalsifiability and question begging. Right? Again, it doesn't matter what the event is. It doesn't matter what evidence you provide. Again, we could talk about the stars rearranging to write Yahweh did this. Right? If any naturalistic explanation is intrinsically more possible and we are only reasonable at believing uh, the things that can be demonstrated and verified by science, and science can only demonstrate and verify naturally occurring normative events, how could you ever falsify that? How could anything ever be evidence for the existence of a supernatural agent? Right? Nothing could, because aliens would be intrinsically more plausible. Su you know, supernatural uh, prankster aliens would be more plausible. Quantum weirdness 
just blame it on quantum weirdness. We don't know why the stars rearranged to look that way, but our minds are pattern forming. And so we think we see that it says Yahweh made this, but they used to think they saw, you know, a hunter with a bow hunting a bear in the stars. You know, we're just pattern forming machines. Why aren't we in the matrix? Why don't we think we're brains and vats? Isn't that more plausible than a supernatural sky daddy who cares what we do with our sex lives? Right. Or, or how about, again, the more humble, we don't know, but science will hopefully find out one day. Right. And, and that and that the miracle claim is really a science stopper. It's it, it, it's it's the lazy way out to say that God did it. All of these are responses that, that insulate that naturalistic epistemology and making it unfalsifiable. So when they say they're open, again, when atheists are like this, when, when Loftus and others say, oh, I'm, I'm entirely open to believing in God. I'm entirely open to the evidence. If I could, if I could be shown, oh, I, I, am, I am so objective. I'm so objective. If I could be shown by the evidence that God exists, I, I would bow down tomorrow. I would bet on right now if I could be shown. They don't mean that. Not only in other settings, when 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 they're when they're not trying to push this this image of objectivity, um, you know, when they're not in, you know innately aware that they're trying to present this image of objectivity, many of them will also say, "Well, I would never worship God." Right? The, the, you know, I, it, it, you know, you have some atheists that'll say, "Well, if I found out that God existed, I still wouldn't worship him." I mean, Hitchens was was one of these people. Um, I think Dillahunty has said something to that effect as well. Um, so th th they're not objective when it comes to this type of thing. They're not emotionally objective. They're not psychologically objective. They're not evidentially objective. They're not epistemologically objective. They're not even epistemologically self-aware of what their own standard does in its circularity and its unfalsifiability. Um, so again, remember, uh, they, 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 are, they are not objective. This epistemology is entirely circular and unfalsifiable. Uh, he then narrows his definition. Loftus narrows his definition to, uh, quote, a miracle is a supernaturally caused extraordinary event of the highest kind, one that's unexplainable and even impossible by means of natural processes alone, end quote. Well, first of all, I don't even know what that means. To be completely frank, I don't know what he means when he says an extraordinary event of the highest kind. So it's it's extraordinarily extraordinary. Are are there are there level? Is there a pie chart for the type of different types of uh, of kinds of extraordinary events um, that he's referring? Is there a middle kind of extraordinary event that wouldn't qualify for a miracle? What I mean, what what is even being used to justify? Or, or make objective uh, boundaries and evaluations on such a subjective scale as that. Who, who decides what's or extraordinary? Who decides what's of the highest kind, or the, or the almost highest kind, or the lesser kind, or the, or the middle earth kind? Uh, I mean, it's just, it sounds neat. You know, his readers are going to be lapping this up. It sounds really, really solid and thought out. But it's not. It, it, it's it's just arbitrary. It, it 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 it's it's entirely subjective. It's not a good standard to use as an epistemological standard for evidence, uh, or for an expl explanatory um, explanation for an event. Uh, I mean, you can ask some other things, right? Would 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 something like the fine tuning uh, for for life anywhere in the cosmos qualify? I mean, let let's go through what counts as extraordinarily implausible of the highest kind, right? So so think about this. 
Mathematicians and cosmologists, many of them, have suggested that events are sti uh, with a statistical probability of 1 times 10 to the power of 50 are statistically impossible to happen. Right? That doesn't mean they're actually saying they're logically impossible to happen, but if, you have, if you're trying to predict something and the event is 1 times 10 to the power of 50 or higher probability, your model's not going to happen. It ain't going to work. Right? Um, Roger Penrose, uh, now that I actually read that, I'm second-guessing myself. It might have been Lee Smolin. Roger Penrose or Lee Smolin, one of them also suggests, uh, one of them suggests that the chances of every single atom in our galaxy spontaneously rearranging itself to, uh, to, to, to a different configuration is somewhere around the odds of 1 times 10 to the power of 80. Okay, that's, a, that's an incalculably high, well, incalculably low number, I should say, um, of that happening. Now let's think about just a, just a smattering, just a, a few of the conditions needed for fi the fine-tuning of, of the early cosmos for the, the universe to be life-permitting, right? We're dealing with environmental conditions here, just the things that are needed for any type of intelligent moral life to exist, any type of life to exist. Right? Um, we're not dealing with, well, a different type of life, maybe, you know, a silicon-based life. We're not talking about that. We mean for any type of chemi organic chemistry to happen, you need this, these types of conditions. Um, the force of gravity, the force of gravity being what it is, it could not alter by any degree difference of 1 times 10 to the power of 34. It, it's that razor thin, the force of gravity. If it was any stronger, everything would blow apart. If it, sorry, if it, everything would collapse back together. If it was any weaker, everything would blow apart. Um, the cosmological constant of the early Earth, uh, or, or, or the early cosmos, 1 times 10 to the power of 120. Remember, impossible is at 50. Spontaneous regeneration of every single atom in the galaxy to rearrange into some other configuration, 1 times 10 to the 80th. The the, the, the probability, the, 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 the fine-tuning uh, of the cosmological constant of the early universe, 1 times 10 to the 120. Astro incalculably small. Just astronomically small. What about the, the, the initial low entropy of, of, of the cosmos? Um, Roger Penrose calculates this as 1 times 10 to the power of 10 to the power of 123. The... the the number of zeros on that one in 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 the in the one to the that many zeros is unfathomably uh, impossible. I, I mean, it's just one times ten to the power of ten to the power of one hundred and twenty-three is insane, right? That's just three. There are. Dozens of these, right? You have the electromagnet uh, magnetic force. You have the nuclear uh, nuclear strong force, nuclear weak force. You have the rate of ex of expansion in the early universe. You have the ratio of the proton to electron mass. You have the proportion of neutrons to protons, so on and so forth. There are there are there are dozens and dozens of these to make the, that have to be present in the initial state of the of the universe for the universe to even have a chance of being life-permitting of any kind, right? When you multiply these probabilities together, remember, these are, these are each a, 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 a something that has to be true 
right? You can't just get rid of one. You get rid of one, the whole thing falls apart. You have to have all of these. You have to, you, so when you multiply all of these, to, the, these, these probabilities together of dozens and dozens and dozens of these, of 1 times 10 to the power of 34, 1 times 10 to the power of 120, 1 times 10 to the power of 10 to the power of 123, it's insanely, what, what, was, what was his word? Ex, it, it's an extraordinary event of the highest kind. Does he expect, accept fine-tuning as evidence for the existence of God? Well, I know he doesn't. He argues that it's not right. He doesn't even keep his own standard. So this, this all just, this, and and that was just some of the features of of environmental conditions. Let alone all the things that go into the probabilities uh, of specified complexity of information uh, and all the kinds of things that are needed to get life actually going. Once you have all of these astronomically impossible environmental conditions, you still have all the you still have the the mountain of improbability of probability to climb to actually get life going. Right, you multiply all that together. It, he doesn't even accept this as extraordinary of the highest kind. So, what if that doesn't qualify? What even would qualify for this? Would, I mean, would would any of the biblical miracles qualify for his standard? Right? Couldn't all of those just be explained by quantum weirdness? Couldn't couldn't they have all been um, just prankster aliens? You know, ancient aliens coming down. Right, the guy with the weird hair. Why why not? That's intrinsically more plausible than any supernatural sky daddy doing it. Right. No evidence could ever qualify for these, right? Um, He—it's he, it, just—it's just an astronomical oversight. It, it, again, his readers are going to lap this up. It sounds great. It tickles their the ears of what they want to hear. But it's just sound and fury signifying nothing. It's, there's no there's no teeth to it. There's no crunch to it because it doesn't really mean anything to say that type of thing. It's just loftus pontificating of what what he. What sounds good? What, you know, well, if, the, if it really was extraordinary of the highest kind. No, you don't. That doesn't mean anything. You deny things that are extraordinary of the highest kind as evidence for the existence of God. Right? If it's that, if it's that extraordinary of the highest kind, by your definition, it should be a miracle. Um, so uh, how, many, how many atheists have said that even if we found God outside of the cosmos? I mean, think of this rejoinder. Right? Even if we found, even if we gave them good evidence, even if we qualified what evidence counted and we were able to, to satisfy his, um, his somewhat vague question-begging standard for what is evidence, how many atheists have we heard say, well, that wouldn't even be supernatural. That would just be an extension of what we understand by being natural. We would just have to redefine. We just have to, you know, expand our understanding of what's natural, and it would all be natural, right? That's the type of explanation that that even if you can meet my standard, even if you can prove me wrong, then I'm still right. It's heads I win, tails you lose. It's, it's an unfalsifiable epistemology that doesn't actually work as a as as a as a warranting epistemology, as an epistemology that can objectively handle real evidence, rationality, reason, logic, it can't because it's circular. It's question begging. It's vague. It's subjective. Right? It's it's unfalsifiable. It's it's incoherent. It's inconsistent with itself. It, it affirms that you can only believe things that are that are accept that are demonstrable by science, which is not itself a claim that's demonstrable by science. I mean, there's so many problems with the scientific neological positivistic view 
But that's all we're getting from Loftus. And that's the initial condition, ironically. That's the epistemology and the standard that's being set up going into the rest of these chapters. And we'll see it carry through the rest of these chapters as we go. We'll see that they never, the light never goes on. They never actually become, excuse me, they never actually become epistemologically self-aware or give a, 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 a rigorous or consistent epistemology or, or rationality or rationale or ability to be logical or, or, or rational or objective when handling arguments and evidence. Um, and because they don't do that, this is all we're going to get the entire way through. It might sound interesting. It might sound cool. It might uh, sound, you know, really, 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 really great and really scientific. But at the end of the day, it undermines itself. It's sound and fury signifying nothing. Now, at the very end of this, Loftus puts a call to to end the philosophy of religion. I, I mean, there there are there are atheists watching and listening that I'm sure uh, are are just are just tired of hearing their atheist uh, their their atheist kin saying I want to say stupid things um, but I'll be I'll be kind saying uninformed things ignorant things um, such as uh, we be, we need to get rid of the philosophy of religion. Um, any 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 events, uh, Loftus invents, or or at least he perpetuates the myth. That there's this crisis um, when there's no crisis. Um, the, the 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 philosophy of religion um, is not a religious thing that happens. Religious people can do it. Non-religious people can do it. It's it's philosophizing about religion, religious epistemology, religious standards, religious history. It's not, there's no crisis, Mr. Loftus. It's just, it's not there. You got to stop. It, it, you know, it reminds me of that cartoon uh, or that meme where it says, you know, we have to reject all of philosophy. And the person says, oh, what's philosophy? And it says, well, philosophy is dot, dot, dot. And then the final one is, ah, you're, and you're doing philosophy. Uh, you, you just, you can't, you can't get away from this type of thing. Um, but, but he thinks that there's a crisis. Um, it, it just, it just shows that Loftus doesn't really understand what philosophy is or what religion is or what the philosophy of religion is. Um, and, and to defend it, um, he, he basically goes into apologetic to go and buy his other book. Um, if, if you want the data to support his claim. Um, well, based on what I've seen so far and the fact that this book was free, uh, and I think I overpaid for it already, um, no thanks. Not going to go buy your other book um, unless this book gets uh, radically better, um, which ironically might be an extraordinary event of the highest kind. And so if this book gets better, maybe a miracle. I don't know. Uh, Loftus then ends the introduction by summarizing the rest of the chapters in kind of a sentence or two as a lot of introductions do. Uh, and so we'll, we'll stop it there. We're going to address each one of these chapters. I'm not going to go into each one based on the one sentence that's there going through the rest of the, you know, 20 whatever chapters that there are. Um, so we'll get to those when we get to those, uh, those episodes dealing with the chapters. All right. Well, thank you again for joining me. Please, uh, subscribe, hit the subscribe, uh, link, uh, here to follow this on YouTube. Uh, follow this, uh, this compilation of these videos. And uh, I look forward to seeing you again soon. For my podcast listeners, thank you again for tuning in. Good night and God bless.